Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And today we're going to talk about this topic of authority. But before we do that, I'd like to exercise the authority I have and plead with you here for a second. Uh, we really want to support our youth group. They are going on a mission trip to Mexico. And that fundraising board has been out there for way too many weeks. We're about 25% through with it. I would love for us to be done with it today. If we can just lick that puppy clean today, that would really make me happy. Uh, my wife grabbed one envelope. I grabbed three. And we were just going for the prize because we're not as altruistic as many of you are. Uh, but we would love for that to be done. And they feel loved and supported and sent out by this church. It's really not about the money. It's about us being on mission with them and imagine the impact we can have in these young people's lives for the rest of their life. They will be impacted by this trip. And so it's a really good thing to support and for them to know you supported them in doing this and where your money is, there goes your heart. So you will be more likely to pray for them as well after you have supported them. So after the service, if you would, each person just grabbing an envelope would just take care of it. And so that would be great. I plead with you and ask you to do that. All right, let's say a word of prayer together as we dive into this very difficult passage. God, thank you for gathering us together this morning as a church. Thank you for your word, which sheds light and is true and it's good. And it helps us to understand our own hearts and our world. Holy Spirit, I ask you to fill this place with your presence and allow us to experience your ministry in our midst this morning. Open us wide to you and your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage in Romans is the Bible's most explicit and longest teaching on this topic of government and authority. And as you might uh, imagine, uh, this is a heavily debated topic and passage. Lots of theologians and philosophers and uh, other leaders, thinkers, have had conflict over this passage. Some use this passage to discredit the Bible. Some use this passage to discredit governments. Some use this passage to control people. Some use this passage for rebellion. There's lots of ways this passage is used and abused and it's loaded. And so my hope today is we can really understand the, the essence uh, of what this passage is saying to us. Dr. Robert Clinton, uh, one of my favorite leadership thinkers and trainers and authors. Oh, give me one second here. Kicked off airplay. The great thing about uh, being kicked off airplay is that my clock starts all over again. And so I haven't spoken for a single minute yet. So here we go. Starting again. <clears throat> so please fund the youth mission trip. Can I say that already? Dr. Robert Clinton, he did an extensive study that was worldwide, studied many, many different countries and cultures uh, for a long period of time. Uh, over time, and he studied leaders and people, and he began to compile a list of short list of things that all great 
leaders who finished well had in common. Right? There are seven things. And then all leaders who finished poorly, ten things, that they all had in common across church denominations and cultures and countries. And one of the things that both lists have in common is this idea of how one relates to authority. Those who finished poorly, every single one of them, hundreds of them, all failed in their um, uh, understanding of and relationship with authority. They just handled authority poorly. And those who did well across cultures, across countries, across time, those who did well as leaders, who finished well, understood what authority was, how to be under it, how to exercise it, and had a good relationship with authority. And so the topic I want us to think about today, I think, is incredibly relevant to all of us. And it's a powerful topic, and it's a pervasive topic, so I think it's worthy of our study here together. Two things. Work the role, and second, consider your conscience. Work the role, consider your conscience. Let's zero in on verse 1 here for work the role. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. This word authority is the Greek word exousia, And it appears four times in this passage that Kent read for us. It appears 103 times in the whole Bible. And it's different than the other word that's often mistaken for this word, exousia. Uh, The other Greek word is dunamis, which means power. Okay, It's where we get the word dynamite. Authority uh, includes dunamis, it includes power, but it adds on one more thing. And so the definition for authority that I have for us is might plus right. So dunamis, the Greek word for power, would just be might. And authority, exousia, is might plus right. And what this passage, this verse 1 zeroes in on, is the fact that all might and right, that is authority, comes from God. Whatever rights we think we have, whether as a citizen of this country, whatever position we hold in government or at work or in the family system or among our friends, whatever social pecking order you feel you fit into, that right comes from God. God is the lone source of anything we might call right. And whatever power you think you have, whatever might you have, whatever ability you have, whatever force you have in whatever capacity, in whatever position, that might comes from God. God is the lone source of it. Two verses to illustrate this. The first one from the book of Job, chapter 34, verse 14. If God were to take back his spirit and withdraw his breath, all life would cease and humanity would turn again to dust. Our very being, the fact that we are, 
that we exist, that comes from God. And if God were to choose and withdrew his spirit, his presence from us, we would immediately cease to exist. Because everything, the Bible says, all things are from him and through him and to him. Job spells it out. Return to the dust. John chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus was arrested and then he was standing trial before Pilate. Pilate was questioning him and Jesus refused to answer him. And so in verse 10 of chapter 19, Pilate says this. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. You do not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So on the one hand, Paul in this passage is describing the reality that all authority, all might and right comes from God. But also, also what Paul is doing here, he is being not just descriptive, but prescriptive. He's also saying, you should understand. As one who is under authority, as one who exercises authority in whatever capacity, you should also understand that whatever authority you have comes from God. Not only should you just know that it does come from God, but you should live in the reality that God is the one who is going to hold you accountable. That if you have authority, that's because God has given it to you for a purpose. The fact that you have authority implicit in that reality is that there is a reason for it. Why else would God give you authority? Every position that exists comes with a mandate, a reason for that position. What's your job? What are you supposed to do with it? Why? How? For whom? In other words, authority is your job description. If you're a mom, if you're a grandma, if you served in the military, if you're a teacher, if you're a manager, if you're a CEO... If you're a citizen of this country, if you're a neighbor, if you are a sibling, if you are a child or a parent, whatever authority you have, your job is to be a conduit of God's will. You exist because God has a will for you. And he has given you authority to be a conduit of not your will, but his will. What is American freedom? It's to do God's will. 
That's what freedom is. You have the power to do what is right. Your primary job description is to carry out God's will. We won't get into this today, but verse 8, we read up to verse 7 today. Verse 8 begins a section on love. That the debt that we have as citizens of heaven, as conduits of God's will, is to love one another. And so the reason authority structures exist is to put into order the very best way to facilitate love of neighbor. We'll get into that next week. But as, as I read here, study about Paul describing what authority is and prescribing how authority should work, my very first question is, well, what if authorities are not in compliance with God's good and perfect will that he talked about in Romans 12. What if there is clear abuse of authority? People are not good with might and right. People are self-centered. People are self-serving. There are conflicts of interest. And I can't just entrust myself to these other people who are basically at their core self-centered. I want them to be me-centered, not them-centered. Right? Isn't that your first question? If Paul is saying we should be in subjection to every governing authority, that assumes a lot about every governing authority. So that is my first question. And I believe Paul addresses it most explicitly in verse 3 and 4. Look, you, look if you will, in the passage printed out for you, or in your Bibles. Verse 3 and 4. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, now that's one way to read it. Now I want to emphasize a word and read it for you again and see if anything jumps out at you. Starting at verse 3 again. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil... Now, Paul is really positioning us, putting pressure on us to do what? He's saying, define yourself. Figure out for yourself what is the best way to respond to this reality that all authority comes from God. Now, what we tend to do is to turn the focus on other people. And we want to define other people. We say, what about you? Wait, are you in subject? Are you trustworthy? Are you, do you, are you going to have your, my best interest at heart? What are you going to do with all of this right and might? Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the way you'll go, go about understanding God's authority. You focus on your obedience to God's authority in your life. In other words, you focus on your obedience. Not your disobedience, not their disobedience, but on your obedience. This is your focus. And sometimes, this is the implication here, sometimes God's will for you 
the will that you are supposed to be a conduit of are going to contradict governing authorities in your life. And when, if and when that happens, your focus does not shift to disobeying that governing authority. It remains on your obedience to God's will. Now, we have many ways to understand this, but think about this. Paul himself, who wrote these words, regularly disobeyed the governing authorities under which he was subject because he was focused not on disobeying them, not on teaching them a lesson, not on setting up the right government, but on focusing on God's will. He couldn't violate his sense, his understanding, later on what he says, his conscience, to what God's will was. Who else? Disciples. Blatantly disregarded and disobeyed. Laws. Because they said, you be the judge. But we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. You tell us to shut up and we have to according to your laws. But we can't. And Jesus himself, how many laws did he break? He got himself killed for it. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. That was the law. Well, you know, I think otherwise. I think it's good. It's God's will to save a life, even on the Sabbath, especially on the Sabbath, he said, because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He broke ceremonial laws. Why? Because there are things to major on, and that was not it. He regularly disobeyed regular civil laws as a way to obey God. So here's our job description. Never ever lose focus on obeying God. Never ever think about disobedience. Not to God, not to the government, to nothing. Our job is to obey. Our authority is from God. And our job description is to be conduits of God's will. Now, let me apply this. Uh, let me begin with a story. Uh, this is a great story, in my opinion. And I consider this story uh, as a gift from above. Because the timing was so perfect. One of the things I absolutely love, 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 and have spent hours of my life doing is uh, sitting in front of a campfire. I have so many memories of doing this over the years. In fact, I have a story where I set my room on fire as a little kid, and I was afraid, and I hid under my blanket while the blanket started to catch on fire. And my mom had to come in and rescue me. But I love fire. I just love it. And so one of the things I love is enjoying this beautiful weather. Yes, we in the Northwest are allowed to talk about the weather sincerely, not as just small talk. This, it's deep for us. We, we just love this weather. And the, the thing that I am most eager to do as the weather gets nice is to sit in front of my fire pit. I have a nice brass fire pit that I throw firewood into, and I could just sit in front of it for hours. And I started doing that as the weather got nice. And uh, recently, a neighbor, as I was sitting out there, uh, knocked on my fence, 
came into my yard and said, Peter, can I talk to you for a second? Do you have a moment? And she very nicely, very lovingly, and I wish she was a little bit more mean about it so I have something to react against and be angry about, but she was so lovely about this. And she said, you know, I know you love your fires, but all that smoke blows directly into my house. And my house is filled with smoke from your fire. And I, I don't want to ask you to do this. I, I know you love it so much and your kids enjoy it. But uh, it's really hurting my family. And so, you know, I called the Seattle Fire Department. And uh, the ordinance here on, the, on Mercer Island is that no open flames are allowed ever without a, without a permit, regardless of whether it's uh, a recreational fire or something else. You're just not allowed. And also, on top of that, there's also a nuisance regulation. And it's called smoking your neighbors out, believe it or not. You're not allowed to create a fire where the smoke serves as a nuisance to your neighbors. And if they have a complaint about that, you're required to put out your fire immediately. And she said, I don't want to have to, but they told me I can be a bad neighbor. This is the word she used. I can be a bad neighbor and call 911 and the fire department would come and they would force you to put the fire out. And then they would charge you for the visit they had to make to your house. I don't want to do that, but I don't want it to have to come to that. And she said, have a blessed day. And she walked out of my yard. <laughs> True story. Now. As soon as she left, I got on Google. I searched for fire regulations. I read all of it myself. It's absolutely true. Every word she said is true for Mercer Island. They're very loose about it, apparently. And if your neighbors don't complain, they don't care. But if, you, if they do, they have all the power, the authority to make you put it out. Not true in Bellevue or Issaquah or, or uh, Fall City. You can have a fire that's shorter than three... Uh, Narrower than three feet and shorter than two feet. That's the regulation for recreational fires. Not so on the island. Now, what's my response? One response that I could imagine myself having and want to have is to get sucked into the emotional vortex that's created when I start thinking about what my rights are. It's my property. It's my kids. It's the kind of dad I want to be, the kind of way that I want to pass time in the summer with my family, roasting marshmallows and being mesmerized by the embers. I want to do that. It's my backyard. Why can't I do it? This is America. This is the Northwest. This is like the corner of like American freedom up here. And I can deconstruct the way she talked to me and the things that I didn't like and the things that were like A minus, B, like D, F. And I can use that in my mind and get sucked into that. But then I can even, maybe even go out and get a permit. And then what? How do I enjoy this fire now? Knowing that every minute that I'm enjoying this fire, somebody is... <coughs> The other way to think about it, and I think I was, by God's grace, able to have this response, is ask the question, what is my role? Instead of being in my body, I can step outside of my body, look at myself, say, Peter, 
What's your job? What are you supposed to do? Well, my job is to uh, get into fights with my neighbor and win. <laughs> no, Jesus said, love your neighbor. Be a neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Don't ask who is my neighbor. You go be a neighbor. That's what Jesus said in the story about the Good Samaritan. And so I asked, well, my, my job is to love people. And here's another thing I realized as I navigated this in my own mind and heart. Love always costs something. It really does. If you want to love somebody the way they need loving, it's going to cost you something. King David said, I will not give to my God what costs me nothing. He's not making some grand statement that's above and beyond his call. He's simply saying, if I'm going to love God, it's going to cost me something. Because that's the nature of love. And if I'm going to love my neighbor, I have to figure out another way to roast marshmallows. And being a creative person, I will figure out some way to not kill my neighbor and still enjoy our marshmallows. There's got to be a way to do it. And we'll figure that out. And so I work the role. This is a great way for you to think about your situation. You know, instead of getting sucked in as a mom, you ask, well, what's the job of a mom? Well, I have God's authority as a mom. What's God's will for moms? What should moms do? What should dads do? What do managers do? What about employees? What are doctors? How do I serve my clients? Oh, God's given me this authority. I'm in this position. Oh, I'm supposed to serve my clients, not be angry about my company. Oh, okay, let me serve my clients. How can I help them today? Oh, God wants me to be diligent. God wants me to not waste my time. God wants me to love. Okay, it begins to really simplify what your day ought to look like. The other option is to get sucked into that vortex that says, what are my rights? How, how, how am I being violated? Instead of focusing on them, you, you consider who your authority is. Whose eyes matter? Yours, your neighbor's, or God's? What does he see? What does he care about? Why do you exist in that relationship, at that company, in that situation? And it begins to really help you think about who you are and why. So work the role. Consider your conscience next. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. By the way, I put the fire out immediately after I did my research and I prayed for a couple of minutes. And it was like the ceremony. I took my hose. Instead of putting it on full blast, I put it on mist. And I just started misting my fire and enjoying the steam bath that was coming out. I said, God, I'm putting this fire out for you, not for her, not for me, just because I know why I exist. And it's going to cost me something. It was wonderful. No, really, it was great. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now, this word conscience is a reference in Paul's part back to Romans 2, where he first brought up this idea of our conscience. 
M. Scott Peck, a psych, the late M. Scott Peck, he's a psychiatrist who wrote a best-selling book uh, in the 70s called The Road Less Traveled. Some of you know this book. I found several copies of this book in our church library when it was back there. Um, so I know many of you have read it. Interesting story about this book and this author is that when he started writing this book, he was a Buddhist. And then in the middle of writing this book, he became a Christian. He converted himself to be a follower of Christ. And so his book radically changes somewhere in the middle of the book. We don't know where, he doesn't say. But by the end of it, he was a full-blown Christian and going on Christian speaking engagements. But the interesting thing is he never changed it. And so I love reading this book because you see sort of the journey of a thinking person as they convert to Christianity. But here's something very interesting, I think worth your read if you want to look it up. Scott Peck, he says this, that the conscience, which is a subset of the subconscious, the conscious, the subconscious is all-knowing. That it knows everything. And when we think we're learning something, we're not actually learning anything new. Our subconscious already knew it. And that's how we are able to recognize something that we think we're learning as new, as true. And when we hear something, we say, oh, 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 that's true. Something in me just recognized it as true. And Scott Peck begins to say in his own Buddhist Christian converting kind of way that he began to sense a presence of an entity other than himself. In the book, he calls it the subconscious. Something we know as the image of God in which we are created. That's what the Bible says, the imago Dei, to use Paul's language. And what we have later now come to know as the presence of the Holy Spirit. Scott Peck didn't have the language for that when he was writing the book. But there is something in us that knows everything that is all good and all true. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 2 when he talks about our conscience. That even before we knew the word God, we had a conscience. And when that conscience is violated, something went off in us. There's a little truth meter that went, Geiger counter, just detecting the radiation of sin. This is wrong. This is not right. And so Cain, the first murderer, kills his brother. And then what does he do? He hides. Well, how did he know to hide? Well, his conscience. There was no laws given. There was no Bible. There was nothing. And yet he knew. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was hide. Well, how did they know to hide? Because of their conscience. There was the presence of the Holy Spirit. They were created in the imago Dei, the image of God. And something told them that what they did, what they participated in, was not good. It was not true. It was not life-giving. It's not notable. It's not beautiful. It's not honorable. It's not becoming of the person God created us to be. It's our conscience. And our subconscious knows this. And Paul says this here again in chapter 13. 
All of this subjection, all of this understanding, description and prescription of how we are to live under authority. If for nothing else, consider your own conscience, he says. For your own conscience sake. Why? Because what we call the conscience, he goes, Paul, later on in the book of Galatians or Ephesians, I forget now, he talks about the grieving of the Holy Spirit, that this outside entity, when we violate our conscience, actually becomes deeply saddened by our act and is sad for us at the good we're missing out on and the cascading effect of the dominoes falling as a result of this violation that's going to happen in our life. And the Holy Spirit within us who loves us, who is a lover of our souls, is beginning to grieve. For your conscience sake, our conscience is a gift from God. It is the image of God. Now our conscience is vulnerable to abuse. It's possible for our hearts to become hardened. But even in its hardened state, the subconscious still lives. The Spirit of God is still present. And it's able to be reawakened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this, teaching about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the image of God. Matthew 22, verse 21. Jesus says this. And this was a question that was asked of Jesus about taxes and whether we should pay taxes or not. And Jesus says this, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And you know what he's saying there? And this is Ravi Zacharias expositing this verse. He says, Give the coin to the one that, whose image is on the coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's image? Well, give it to Caesar. It's his. It's got his face on it. It's made in the image of Caesar. And then he turns to the questioner, and this is Ravi explaining this passage. He says this, And in whose image are you created? He's saying, do you have a conscience? That conscience is reflective. It bears the image of your creator. You belong to the one who created you. And the way you know who created you is by the image in which you are created. And the way you know that image is by your conscience. As Romans 2 again. So give yourself wholly to God, for you belong to Him. Your authority, your very existence is God's. Uh, An author and contributor to several magazines, writing for Inc. Magazine, uh, Minda Zetlin, uh, says this in a recent article. She says that one of the best way to manage your own life, to be able to navigate through all of the tricky situations that add up to what we call life, she says, is to be able to see the situations objectively. And she implies this. She's not quite able to say it. But what she's saying is, your own perspective is not helpful. 
What's going to be most helpful to you is not your perspective or his perspective or her perspective, but another objective uh, perspective, one that is objective. And I think she's talking about God's perspective. And so in every situation, we ask the question, we work the role, and we say, well, I like my fire. I was really looking forward to this in the months when it was raining. How does God see this situation? The reality is, I live here, and she lives there. And God loves her. God loves me. And I begin to look at it. From God's perspective. And instead of an either or, I'm able to think about a both and solution. Because I don't think God wants to love me at the expense of her, nor her at the expense of me. But his will is good across the board. But how? And that's me seeking God's perspective. Let me apply this. Now, if authority represents the presence of light, that's might and right, right? Here's something we learn about sin. Okay, ready? We're not going to go into this, but I want to tell you this and ask you to apply it in your life. Here's a statement. The power of sin is in its secret. The thing that you are hiding from authority, whether it be the authority of a loved one in your life, or from a governing authority, one with official governing power. That's where the power of sin lies, because sin feeds off darkness. Sin hates light, Jesus says. And the way you know you are a sinner is if you love darkness rather than light. Sin, my definition for it, is an illegitimate way to meet a legitimate need. I think at its core, all needs are legitimate. That's why we have them. And God wants to meet them. But when we try to meet them in illegitimate ways, that's when we get into trouble. And we know this. Our conscience testifies that this way is illegitimate. And we hide it. And we don't feel safe enough with an authority figure in our life. One who has the might and right to speak into our life. It can be a loved one. It can be a neighbor, it can be a friend, it can be a boss, it can be a counselor, somebody who can help you. And so I want to suggest to you that instead of continuing to violate your conscience, which I believe you're doing, and instead of grieving the Holy Spirit, which I believe you do, and we all have secrets because we're human, I think every single person in this room has secrets. It's no secret that we have secrets. So I want to ask you, this week, think about telling, bringing one other pair of eyes onto that secret that you have. And begin to experience that relief in your conscience, that burden on your shoulders, and see it affect everything else in your life. See it energize you and just, it's like plugging on appliance. You're going to come to life in a way you haven't in a long time. The power of sin is in its secret. Okay? Second point of application is what I would call self-control. Galatians 5, 
22, the book of Galatians chapter 5 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And then lastly, self-control. Against such things, there is no law where there is no authority here. And this is the fruit of the Spirit. And here's what I think Paul is saying. When all the other fruit of the Spirit aren't there, like you don't have love, you don't have patience, you don't have gentleness, you don't have goodness, you don't have kindness, the thing that keeps you safe, the walls of your city, is self-control. What keeps you from totally self-imploding is self-control. And what I think Paul is saying here is this. When you got nothing, no feelings, and you're sucked in the emotional vortex, and your life is messy and it's filled with secrets, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating people, ask the question, what's my conscience telling me? And regardless of how you feel, just do it. Exercise control of self or self-control. When you have no other fruit of the Spirit, at the very last and least, exercise self-control. Just obey. Just obey. I don't have to feel like putting out the fire. I don't have to feel like honoring this neighbor of mine. I don't have to feel good about it. It doesn't matter. At the end, I just do what I am called to do and exercise self-control. I don't feel patience or love. Not yet anyways. But I obey my conscience. I obey the image of God and the Holy Spirit, lest I grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, as a uh, Christian church, what we are preaching is not self-control. What we preach is not obedience. That doesn't get us very far. What we say here is that Jesus is the one to whom, scriptures teach, all authority was given. And he was recognized as a man under authority. In obedience to his father, he gave himself. Rather than living for himself and his own interest, rather than letting power corrupt him, he gave power away so that we might not be the, we might not be victims of the power of darkness, which we were. Consider this image behind me. What represents power more than a crown? And yet the crown Jesus wears is a crown of thorns. Fashioned to symbolize the abdication of power. One who by choice became utterly powerless so that we might be set free into his kingdom, that we might be under his government so that we no longer would be under the reign of sin in our lives. And that even if we should die, even physically, we will still be face to face with Him, our King, our Lord, our Savior, and our friend. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we want to be a people under authority. We want to be a people who are working our role as citizens of heaven by becoming the very best citizens of earth. 
We give ourselves wholly to you as you have given yourself to us. And we pray for your help in shedding light in our lives. And you will do that through those around us, whether it be our governing authorities or our friends, our bosses, our neighbors, our loved ones. Help us to experience the light of your authority in our life. Thank you for your rule and reign. We pray to you, God and King, in Jesus' name. Amen.